Podcast, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. We're nearing the end of season 14. We're into the, the second week of September, episode 41 of this elongated season of the podcast. Uh, we're recording on Monday, the 11th of September. My final road trip of the summer is complete, Jeff. I've been back and forth to Cardiff and Southampton, both in one day uh, for commentary and the daily shows for the England, New Zealand one dayers. So I'm pleased to be sat on my sofa in London. The heat wave seems to have come to an end as well. I think today might be on the warmest side, but we've got lots to get through this week. The One Day World Cup is around the corner and there is so much one day cricket being played. I love the 50 over format and we've enjoyed um, some brilliant cricket, especially from South Africa, um, which will be the focus of our conversation off the top mm. where Australia have been, uh, England uh, hosting New Zealand, the Asia Cup all happening at the same time in the Later in the show, I've got two lads, uh, James Norden and Will Flynn, joining me. You might know them if you're watching Sky Cricket last week, the final of the England Physical Disability uh, Tournament. But I've been playing a couple of games with them for the tabs, and they both play for the England PD team. And I thought this would be a timely moment to have them tell us a little bit more about what they do and the teams that they play in. And uh, yes, we're, we're as I said, we're, we're not far away from all of our focus being the One Day World Cup, but there's still domestic cricket being played over here, the county championship. Uh, there's another instalment of The World is Fucked. There's been a, a landmark victory for Sri Lanka's women in a T20 series over England this week as well at Derby. Jeff, uh, hello properly this time. Yeah, which came in about five minutes after we published or, or finished recording the episode last week. So we're a little bit behind on on that particular one, but I look forward to having a chat about that. And, and 50 over cricket. I mean, all the all the World Cup squads have been trickling in. We'll, I think we'll do a specific show before the World Cup where we go through the squads because yeah. I'm sure there'll still be a, there'll, there'll be changes and people will be subbed out and there, there'll, there, are, <laughs> there are machinations to come in the couple of weeks ahead. But... 50 over cricket it's like it's it's like that that group of friends who you don't see for a few years and then you catch up and you're like oh this is great we had a really good time we should do this more often knowing full well that you will definitely not do it more often you will do it at best at the same frequency it'll be another three years until you do it again and then you'll say oh this is great I had a really good time that's 50 over cricket once it is actually in front of us we like it we just don't really think about it much when it's not happening. Yeah, this has been a point of frustration for me uh, this week covering England, New Zealand. There's a lot of complaining about how little 50-over cricket England have played, and New Zealand to an extent, but mostly the England team. Remembering the history of this, Owen Morgan after 2015, the disastrous World Cup for England, knowing they were, they were playing a home World Cup in 2019, they packed the schedule with bilateral one-day series, often five or seven games. Indeed, most of them were played over five or seven games. I think they played 90 games in, in the four-year cycle. And that was great. It worked extremely well for them. Uh, they had a, an incredibly well-drilled team. Um, they all knew their roles and so on by the time they reached that World Cup. But it's been a function of convenience with the schedule that in the last few years there's been less one-day cricket, there's been a pandemic, and most of all, there's been the World Cup Super League, which we've all welcomed because one-day series suddenly had context. But the trade-off for that, uh, in order to play so many series in the World Cup Super League, which you know was the catalyst for the Dutch making a 10-team World Cup, there's simply no way Hollander in the 10-team in the World Cup this year without the 24 one-dayers they've played against other full-member nations over the previous three years. So it's had a serious benefit to the global game. Uh, more broadly, sad that that tournament is no longer, and we've gone through that um, before. But 
nevertheless, there's that, that was welcomed uh, three or four years ago. Like, oh, great, no more five-game series, no more seven-game series. It's back to, you know, three-match one-day series that people thought, broadly speaking, would be a good thing. But now, at the end of the cycle, there's this sense that mm. not enough 50-over cricket's been played and thus teams are scratching around a little bit to get their configurations right ahead of a 50-over World Cup. So it's not perfect either way, just simply noting that there is backstory to why we've had about half as many one-dayers in the last four years as the four that came before it. Well, I think the other thing to factor in, aside from the year and a half or so that, that gets broadly lost to the pandemic, is since the 2019 World Cup, there have been two T20 World Cups yeah. in the men's game in back-to-back years. And it was a, maybe unnecessary, it was maybe crammed, but teams still want to win those tournaments. If you're playing in the tournament, you're going to try to win it. In the lead-up, you're going to try to prepare for it. So there was a lot more... There was bilateral T20 cricket got prioritised by England, by other countries, but I mean, I think particularly England had a focus on that. Um, it paid off for them. They did win one of those T20 World Cups. And so some of the time that they might have spent playing 50 over cricket was spent playing 20 over cricket. And remember just how much everybody kicked off after that T20 World Cup last year when they did play some 50 over games against Australia and everyone said, this is bullshit. What a waste of time. Yes. What, why are they playing a pointless three match 50 over series? It was like, because um, there's a 50 over World Cup in less than a year. So you probably take your opportunities to play other good teams when you can. Right, yeah, and that was tacked on the back of a T20 World Cup and it did feel out of context. I understand all that at the time. We probably made observations like that. But yeah, like the schedule is a nightmare and that is principally due to the proliferation of T20 domestic tournaments and and the way they balkanise the schedule. Like England haven't been able to turn out their best one-day team uh, partly due to that, partly due to... I mean, look at that Bangladesh series played earlier this year where a number of their 50-over players made the decision to not be there in, in order to play in the PSL. So, yeah, there are trade-offs made all the time. And the way in which T20 cricket was prioritised is perfectly sensible. Remember, there wasn't a T20 World Cup between 2016 and 2021. Now, it would have been in 2020 if not for the pandemic, but there were five years where bilateral T20 cricket didn't feel that important. Then suddenly, before two T20 World Cups, it was the prevailing conversation around men's white ball cricket. And it's just mm. that, that adjustment's taken place a little bit later than what would have been ideal. Great if we could have played a year of, of uh, heavy-duty 50-over cricket. The truth is most of the serious 50-over cricket was played last year at the end of the World Cup Super League cycle. The Dutch played six series last year, right? Like, they played all of their mm. important cricket in terms of um, positioning themselves for qualification um, in that in that 2022 block after the pandemic had subsided and, and lockdowns had lifted and so on. So, yeah, it's, none of this is perfect, but it's, um, you know, you've got to view it in the broader context and not just get angry that England uh, haven't quite worked out where the Harry Brook fits in and don't quite know, you know, what their best fast yeah. bowler configuration is. Yeah, I get all of that might be frustrating, but they've got time to work it out. We've still um, got a couple of one-dayers for them against New Zealand and three games against Ireland, albeit games that don't have most of their um, World Cup squad, apart from Harry Brook, who mm. might get in there. Uh, and then they go to India and they've got, you know, a nine-game uh, nine pool stage. So, that you know, we know in 50-over World Cups there is sufficient time for things to, to fall into place. I'm still interested, um, intrigued by just how much attention there is on 
can Harry Brook in the team? Will Harry Brook in the team for a guy who still hasn't played any 50-over cricket and hasn't done anything much in the couple of games that he has played, having got the opportunity at the top of the order with Jason Roy out? But, yeah, this this island side is interesting. It's it's kind of the test batting order, uh, you know, Crawley, Duckett, um, and then Brook in there. Mm. The, the, the young guns who are who are powering that test side, you know, the, the, the kind of momentum givers to that um, aggressive test cricket approach are getting their shot. They've thrown Rehan Ahmed in there as well, um, who's, who's part of that. Uh, it's, it's an interesting situation where your test team is your second tier one day team as opposed to the other way around. You know how it always used to be. I, I know this is very out of date now, but that kind of late 90s style thing where you'd have most of the test team being the one day team yeah. with a few fringe players who couldn't crack the test side, but they would be picked for 50 over stuff. This is the other way around for England. Well, I think what we're getting here is a sign that the, uh, the bulk of the England white ball team are coming towards the end of their career. Like they've been together for you know, the better part of a decade, right? And, uh, and they're not going to retire at once, but um, a 50-over World Cup this year, another 20-over World Cup uh, nine months from now might see a number of them off. And that's where, like, like take Sam Hain, right? So Sam Hain's got, is it the best list day record ever or something like that? He averages 59, never had the chance to play for England, could have played for Australia or Hong Kong. He was born in Hong Kong, played Aussie 19s, moved over, played county cricket over the last nine or 10 seasons. And you know, he's there and thereabouts uh, for the, uh, yeah, I wouldn't say he's, um, he might be in like the next six batters in the queue for test selection, made a double ton earlier in the season out there at Warwickshire, double failure last week in the uh, championship game against Surrey, but still it's his time, right? He's 28, he's dominated 50 over cricket and he's going to get an opportunity at last. Jamie Smith, he's the coming man. He'll, he'll be in England's test side soon enough. He'll get his one day international here. Uh, you mentioned Ben Ducker and Zach Crawley, who's captaining the team. That might be a bit of a tell as to how they see um, the leadership of the England team moving into the future. Phil Salt, who played in that T20 World Cup for the most part last year. And yeah, Harry Brook stands out, doesn't he? You know, Brook has had a bad week. He batted magnificently at Durham and Manchester to start the T20 series. I think Cam Ponson made a great point on our um, daily show that night after the Manchester win that maybe you just pick Brook and go, he's the generational talent that's coming through and you mould the rest of the team around him on the basis that he'll be a match winner a couple of times through a World Cup yeah. at least. But the other or side maybe of it... You, you pick the guys who have played a lot of 50 over cricket and done well in it over a number of years yeah. instead of just taking a speculative punt. Well, that's it. You, that, you, you, the you the logic still doesn't quite check out. Well, you dance with the one that brung you and that's Dava Milan who has enjoyed a, a great start. I say start to his one day career. He plays so little and he's played a lot more in the last 12 months or so. Um, he made a half century at Cardiff to start the series. He missed the, the game at uh, Southampton yesterday, having um, uh, had a child born. His uh, wife had a kid on Saturday, their second child, I think it is. So, But yeah, so Milan is going to be there, and as it will be, the guys that pick themselves, Stokes, Root, Bairstow. Roy might be possibly maybe the guy they could part ways with to get Brook in, but um, that would mean using either Milan or Brook as opener, and Brook's missed out twice against New Zealand. So yeah, I, I don't really see it happening. The other option is whether they drop a bowler to get Brook in. I did think maybe David Willey could be in the death spot again as he was four <laughs> years ago. However, Willey bowled beautifully yesterday. Uh, he bowled mm. really, really well with the new ball. How's this? He's played 66 one day as now, right? On Friday in, in, in Cardiff, it was the first time since his debut that he didn't get given the new ball. But And then he gets the new ball yesterday and goes through Finn Allen and takes his middle stump out of the ground, second delivery with one that came back through the gate. So I think we know where Willey is in the side, what his best role is. And of course, they have the, the luxury of bringing Mark Wood back by the time the tournament begins. 
Yeah, and um, Trent Bolt came back like he'd never been <laughs> away. Um, interesting that he had to spend so long on 99 ODIs <laughs> and came back and played, played his 100th at last on his return and, and bowled beautifully up the top, that classic left arm swinging in to the right-handers and, and had them in all sorts of trouble. New Zealand did a very wholesome squad announcement. I don't know if you saw it. Um, so they've, they've had, like, family members of each of the players oh. uh, announcing them on video, like their kids or their grandmas or their mums or their partners going, oh, you know, cap number, blah, blah, blah. So it's very New Zealand, you know, on trend kind of wholesome stuff. But, yeah, like I said, we'll, we'll get into the, the depth of the squads at mm. some point when we'll, we'll actually lay all ten of them out and, and trawl through the entrails of literally of those squads. Yeah, that, that's a good idea. We'll do a special show on that between now and, uh, and October the 3rd or whenever the first game is. Happens to be Fifth. between England and England and New Zealand play the curtain raiser or say the curtain raiser. The, the, the first game, it's a, a game being played at Umdabad at the 110 or 130 seat stadium, thousand seat stadium, depending on which end of the ground you look at the plaque, as we learnt last <laughs> early, earlier this year when we were there. But yeah, like you know, New Zealand, just to quickly touch on on them, how they're going to set up in the World Cup. We know Sartner will be their main spinner. Is Ravindra good enough to be their second spinner? I think probably not. I mean, he just doesn't look anywhere near good enough to hold up an end. So how do you play that when? As Jeremy Coney keeps saying, he's a better batsman than he is a bowler. So can you afford to have a bowler who's going to leak runs on smaller grounds? Is it going to be Glenn Phillips, who bowls part-time off-spin, but he's so bloody competitive, he might be mm. enough to partner with Sartner to get you know five or six overs in. Do they need a second specialist spinner throughout with Sartner and overlook both of the other two as, and maybe use them as their sixth or seventh bowlers? And you know, already touched on Finn Allen having some troubles against the moving ball, the way that his bat comes down on the angle and, and so on. Daniel um, observed that last night. Um, you know, Will Young, a couple of starts, but so organised. Might it be better that they look to use someone like him along with Kane Williamson, who's somehow returned from injury. He's had all these dramas with his recovery from that bad knee injury from the IPL, but he's going to be there. So is there room for Young and Williamson? All of these questions. That's the fun part of this, isn't it? Speculating about uh, where it all might land. And Jeff, we were having exactly the same conversations around Australia and South Africa. The Aussie squad has been announced and we won't go into great depth. I'm pleased to see Sean Abbott's there. God, he's been good in domestic cricket the last few years. And and for Australia now in, in 20 over cricket and 50 over cricket, getting the chance. I'm sure he won't be in the first 11. They've got to try and have to fit Cummins and Hazelwood both in the same 11. I'm not sure if that's even possible with Stark there and and the probability of, of pitches that won't suit three specialist seamers, who's to know. But, you know, Cummins, Stephen Smith, Mitchell Stark, Glenn Maxwell, all recovered well enough from their injuries that they're all in that squad of 15. Well, it worked in that T20 World Cup of 2021, the, the Cummins Stark Hazelwood situation. So, true. Who knows? Yeah, they they they've rolled over South Africa twice at the moment. Um, I I felt for Temba Bavuma. He's he's carrying such a weight mm. on his shoulders. He's he's not the biggest guy in the world, but carried his bat, carried his team, made 114 not out, got them up to 222, and then Australia in trouble. 72 for five, concussion sub comes in, Labuschagne, mark two concussion <laughs> sub, and with Agar from that point, just mowed it down like it was no problem at all. I mean, the partnership that those two put on was exceptional. He ends up 80 not out, Labuschagne, and, you know, they put on over 100 in order to get to that total um, and, and then just blew them away in the second game. 
I just love one day cricket like this where a team can get uh, into a game as Australia were right into South Africa probably should have bowled them out for less than 200 Bavuma um, puts on 30 odd for the 10th wicket gets over 100 222 feels competitive then it feels huge when they take those early wickets and it, it undoes a lot of their good work with the ball like the top order is completely blown away Warner makes a second ball duck from memory uh, and then yeah the, the moment with Cameron Green where amongst those wickets he's whacked in the head his second ball Rabada. Um, cops him just on, on the side of the head there. It was a really nasty blow. And after they did some checks on his jaw, they, they took him off as a precautionary measure or so it was reported at the time. And yeah, down to 113 for seven, you're like, well, South Africa, what a win this is going to be. Enter Ashton Agar, 48 not out from 69 balls. The, the composure he shows throughout his cricket. You know, Agar has experienced some tough times in the last 12 months, not least what happened to him uh, in India when in the test squad. He's spoken a little bit more about that and and the challenges for him recovering from that. But, you know, in this one-day team, there's such a strong core of of guys that have been playing cricket together for a long stretch of time, mostly as white ballers. So, you know, Maxwell, Stoinis, Zampa. Um, I know Kane Richardson's not there at the moment, but he's a big part of that story. Mitchell Marsh. Uh, and and Agar, right? Like, they're all very close mates, and I, I don't think that is unrelated to how comfortable he feels in a situation like that. And, yeah, Marnus coming in as the concussion sub. Like, he's not in the World Cup squad, but 80 not out from 93. They end up putting on an unbeaten 112 and win with 58 balls to spare. That kind of belies how close it felt. It always... It, watching it felt like they were, they were one wicket away from still losing the game and, and that's the way they had to play they were against a pretty good bowling attack too Janssen Rabada and Gidi Maharaj so four high quality um, South African bowlers who are all in their World Cup squad so yeah but one day games Jeff you know in T20 cricket it is so difficult to get back in once you're behind right uh, understandable you, I mean I guess that's perhaps in the modern T20 game there are players who have the ability to change it in two or three overs but the central case is that if you're a long way behind, you lose and you lose heavily. Whereas in 50-over cricket, you've got enough time to consolidate, I suppose. And, and that's what Australia were able to do from a tough spot. And they went 1-0 up at Bloemfontein. And, and Labuschagne, even though he's out of the squad, who knows, they might just take him as one of their reserve players in, in case there's an injury. They play three games in India Maybe. before the start of the World Cup, three bilateral, just, you know, bog-standard matches against India, as Australia always seemingly do before a World Cup. They always seem to squeeze in a, a bilateral series against India, whether it's a T20 World Cup or a, or a 50 over World Cup. So why not just take Labuschagne? And if something changes, they're under, um, they don't actually need to submit their team to the ICC until the 28th of September. So there probably is a scenario where Labuschagne bangs the door down, isn't there? I mean, they, it, it, why wouldn't there be? If, if he keeps making mm. runs... He could, you know, uh, I don't know who it would be. I don't want to speculate, but um, there might be a world where he ends up higher in the pecking order. It has happened before. Well, uh, 124 off 99 balls in the second game Mm. to back that up. Um, That's a couple of bangs on the door. But it's very cricket, the the recency bias that people who follow cricket have as soon as someone's made a couple of scores they've got to go to India got to go to the World Cup when it's more like the body of work over a number of years um, there there was that point that, that Labuschagne's scoring rate has been something that's been questioned in 50 over cricket so that was a quick hundred which makes a difference as well um, I was more interested in David Warner at this point who also made a hundred didn't just make a hundred but that's his 20th one day international ton so he was Already second for Australia behind Ponting, but still, Ponting made 30 of them. Warner's made 20, having played a lot fewer games because they just don't play as much 50-over cricket anymore. It, it's still a, a pretty significant point to reach to. He's gone past 
Brian Lara, he's gone past Mahela Jaya Wardner. He, for the time being, has gone past Barbara Azam, who I'm sure will catch him up pretty quickly. But I think it's something that needs to be recognised. You know, people always just talk about Warner as the test player um, or the T20 player, but he's got one of the all-time great Australian ODI batting records. He's also gone past Sachin Tendulkar in terms of uh, hundreds made whilst opening the batting in international cricket. He's got 46 uh, as an opener now, Sachin made 45. So it's pretty clear, I suppose. Um, David Warner's a better cricketer than, than Sachin Tendulkar. Yeah, sorry, it's in it, the numbers. You can't argue uh, with the numbers. Uh, just to come back to the point you made around Labashone and recency bias, I, I, I get what you're saying, and I think that might be more applicable to junior players where they have a run and they're yet to be properly established. Like, we kind of know with Labashone that he's a, a class international competitor. So picking him on the basis of red-hot form. And, you know, that, that strike rate you mentioned as well, 124 from 99, they did get 392 for eight. Like, Australia don't do that too often, right? And Labashane's played a big role in that, as has Travis Head, who's been a revelation opening for Australia since Pakistan last year. He made 64 from 36, putting in the hard yards with Warner. Well, I say the hard yards, cashing in with Warner. They put on 109 inside 12 overs to begin the match. And then Mitch Marsh gets a first baller, leg before to Shamsi, and in walks Labashane and plays that innings at at number four. So, yeah, I I get where you're coming from, but I don't think it's as simple as that with him. Like, if he does continue on a run like this, again, there's no easy person to drop. It's the Australian one-day team before a World Cup, but he might make the case uh, for the selectors between now and the 28th of September. I guess that's all I wanted to add. Yeah, I reckon your openers are your openers. Um, Steve Smith is Steve Smith, and... Basically, everybody else offers bowling options. So unless he can mm. uh, get himself some overs and start taking a few, um, then then <laughs> he did bowl a few. That's he, the route in. They did bowl him the other day. Got you got taken for a few runs at the end, mm-hmm. but by that point, the job had been done. Zampa picks up a four for Abbott two. Uh, Nathan Ellis, bloody hell, he's a good cricketer. He's a fantastic cricketer, Nathan Ellis. Any other era, he's playing in this mm-hmm. World Cup. He's had you know. I suppose he's more known for his T20 exploits over here in England, Death having, bowling, won, yeah. having won the blast last year and so on. But, you know, he took a hat-trick on international debut last year. It feels like a long time ago, maybe two years ago. He's a depth bowler. He gets chances mm. to play for Australia when, when, the, when the big guys are resting or are injured. But you can kind of see what this white ball team will feel like post-Cummins, Hazelwood, Stark, when they all make their white ball retirements probably sooner rather than later, where they've got you know, Abbott and Ellis who are coming through. And Ellis, who um, at one point had a ball smack into the stumps, an inside edge onto the stumps. It was in his first over. And the ball ricocheted back and bounced off the middle stump by a metre and the bales didn't come off. I don't want to labour this point, but as you know, Jeff, I've been banging on about this for four years now. The, the bales are there to uh, indicate whether the stumps have been hit. That's its primary function. When bales started, it was for that. I'm not saying get rid of the bales. I'm saying that given we have this technology where the stumps tell you now when they've been hit, they light up and so on with the zing bales, that should be sufficient for a bowl dismissal. If the ball is touching the stumps, it should be bowled. We don't need to, you know, mm. um, reinvent the wheel. It's simply that we don't... It's not speculative. The reason yeah. the bales are there to begin with isn't whether the ball hit the stump hard enough to dislodge the bale. It was to tell whether the ball hit the stumps. So I think Mm -hmm. that the ICC should consider this before the World Cup because it's Murphy's law, isn't it? It will cost a team at a crucial part of the tournament and we needn't be stubborn about these things. Let's take advantage of the technology that Zing Bales and and the light-up stumps provide Mm. and allow, before the World Cup, to make a, a little tweak to the playing conditions and any ball that hits the stump should be bold, in my view. 
It's it's interesting that because cricket has these weird little idiosyncrasies where you know fate can be against you or luck can go your way or not and you just have to roll with it and so on you know your your hat blows up back onto the stumps or whatever it might be and and I I understand the romance of that I I appreciate that I like those things but I think it used to be much more rare you know it must it used to be a very occasional thing that a bale wouldn't dislodge because bales fell off more easily. The zing bales are heavier and heavier. they don't fall yeah. off. I mean, it's, it's, it's become so commonplace, particularly in international white ball cricket, to see this happen that it does reach a point where it is actually unreasonable to say that, you know, like you already have – bowlers get shortchanged at every turn. You, you bowl a beautiful outswing, get an outside edge and it flies away for four runs. If you actually hit the stumps and still don't get a dismissal for it, that seems fairly unfair. Well, it was a big part of the 2019 World Cup. I had reason to go back and, and check this out the other day. I had one of my reply guys on Twitter saying, oh, you, you didn't complain about this before or whatever. I, I, look, I, I was, you know, in 2019 when Ben Stokes had one of these against Bangladesh, it was by my count the fourth time to that stage of the tournament. We were about three weeks in. So there was probably a lot more than that by the time we finished because there's yeah, obviously so many games being played, 48 We were counting games. them. There, there were, yeah, there we were. were. like a dozen of them from memory. Yeah. And we were getting annoyed about it at the time. Quite. And, and it, to me, it's like we're four years on from that. We're about to hit a World Cup again. I'm not saying get rid of the bales, by the way. The bales have been, have, have increased Increase the size of the stumps marginally because, of course, you can hit the bale without hitting the stump, you know, hit the top of the bale. Cool. No dramas with that. The stumps are marginally bigger on the basis of the bales being there. But if the ball glances the stump, yeah, as I say, game over. And the Ellis one was far more overt than that. It, it, you know, bounced into middle stump and it still didn't dislodge the bales miraculously. Mm. But, yeah, I think that's that's an easy one. Not for all cricket. Obviously, it wouldn't work in recreational cricket. The MCC needn't change the laws because there'd be no way of, um, you know, the, the bales are needed for a reason in games without the technology. But... The ICC playing conditions for these tournaments and for mm. TV games are often quite different. They, they they expand upon the MCC laws of the game where there are nuances required, and, and this is one of those. So it's not a difficult tweak. We uh, and, I, and I see actually no reason why it can't be tidied up in the next few weeks before we get to the group games. Sure, it'll be a big story for one day, but you know the, mm. the benefit will be that you won't see someone get bowled in a World Cup final, and it costs a team a trophy for no other reason than the the heaviness of these zing bales, which are only a relatively recent addition to uh, international cricket. The Asia Cup will, well, we might not have much to come back to next week, but we'll see if we do have anything to come back to because they're all being washed out at the moment. <laughs> India and Pakistan are into their second day and it's raining again. Yeah. Um, so nothing has actually happened in the Super Fours. Sri Lanka, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh made it to the Super Fours. Um, we've had half of one game, not even a full innings played. India were 147 for two overnight, resuming on the second day after an interesting quirk where a reserve day was added for the India-Pakistan game and for the final and not for any of the other games in the Super Fours. <laughs> I like that. I was tickled by that. Look, I get the commercial realities uh, of the situation, but the procedural fairness for all the other teams in the Super Four, it is striking. Well, all the other teams, the other two teams in the Super Four, uh, in Bangladesh and Sri Lanka. Yeah, I mean, this Pakistan were meant to be hosting this tournament, weren't they? So mm. so let's be really clear. So, is it raining so in Pakistan? Pakistan? So Pakistan I mean, needs to go It's still technically monsoon season in Pakistan, but is it monsooning in Pakistan? I don't know. Well, well Pakistan are obliged to go to India for the 50 over World Cup and, and are. Mm. Why aren't India playing in Pakistan as was meant to be the case? Oh, that's right. Because, you know, the usual reasons. But more on, mm. um, as we said, more on the world is fucked a little bit later in the show. Right, let's finish off the segment with a little bit of... An... 
Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge, the game that we play where people try to stump us or, in the case of Lockie McCorkadale, doesn't try to stump us. $3.63 okay. is the number. We, have to, we don't actually have to figure out what it means because he's told us what it means. Beautiful. Also, what a great name as well, McCorkadale with mm. a Q-U in the middle. It's a, it's a, that's a very strong vibrant, bullocky sort of name. I like it. It's, um, it's a sort of name where number. Yeah, you're spending your whole life spelling it to people, but no one ever forgets mm. you. So it, yeah. the, the benefits outweigh the, the frustration, I reckon. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, if I had to, it, it's, it's an imposing looking name. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't be making any fun of it, say, over the phone, for instance. Um, if, if, uh, I wouldn't want to bet on, you know, Lockie coming around and kicking the door in if, if things didn't, weren't polite enough. He might give you a corky if you were to do mm. so. There you go. Um, a, a corky to Adam Dale. So he, he said this. So he, he sent through $3.63, which means the number is three sixty three, and normally that would be a mystery and we'd have to solve it. But he said, here is a full toss. For you guys, I'd love to hear any story that you can find about test match number 363. Uh, can't wait to listen to you throughout the ashes. So that gives you a, a, an idea of the, the date that this came in. You love doing this, Adam. Um, I do. Test match numbers is, is one of your vibes. So I had a look at this one for you. 363 is a belter. It's uh, January 1953. It's India visiting the Caribbean. First test, start of a tour. Many of the greats are there. Vinu Mancad's playing. Vijay Hazare is playing for India. Palan Amragar, commonly known as Polly, he's there. And uh, the Windies have the three Ws. Uh, Frank Worrell, Everton Weeks, Clyde Walcott are all playing and they're great spinners, Sonny Ramadine and Elf Valentine. They're being captained by Jeff Stolmeyer. So this is interesting, Lockie, because Jeff Stolmeyer is one of the last, he's maybe the third last uh, white captain of the West Indies. And a few years later, he's in the administration when they shift uh, to appoint Frank Worrell as the permanent black captain, which hadn't happened before. So George Headley had captained one test match in 1948, but it was, wasn't a permanent appointment. It was a, a one-off. It was supposed to be a two-off, but um, ended up being one because he was injured for the second. So Worrell is effectively the first full-time appointment as a, a black West Indies cricketer to lead that team in 1960-61 and and we talk about 60-61 all the time when that West Indies team come to Australia that famous series you forget that that's Frank Worrell's first tour in charge I mean that's he's captaining that side for the first time and he's the first full-time black captain to be appointed for any team and and it's such a vibrant and significant and, and historic tour you know that it's a it's a, a huge thing to have delivered on your first time leading that side but that's a different series this is the series that we're looking at from 1953 india stack up the runs adam uh, polly amragar is not yet the captain of india he will become one of the great captains um, but he's he's a big dude as well he's he's like i'm imagining Lockie mccorkadale um Six footer, built like a fridge, belts the ball, bowls off spin idiosyncratically. He makes 130. Um, the rest of them bat around him. So 
30s, 40s, 60s. They make 417. West Indies recover from two early wickets and then Everton Weeks goes big, makes 207. Walcott makes 47. There's a fella called Bruce Peridot who makes 115 on debut and he's one of these interesting cats that you like the stories of where they start really well and then absolutely go to shit. So he makes 115 on debut. He bats 20 more times. Three fifties, 15 single-figure scores and ends up with an average of about 20, having made a ton on debut. They reach 409 for four, so they're eight runs behind India and then they're all out for 438. So they lose six for 29 after being past 400 for the loss of four. Subash Gupta is the leg spinner who takes five of those six wickets in the collapse. There's a run out in there. So he finishes up with seven wickets for the innings. And then Polly Umregar tops scores again in the third innings. He makes 65. Eight West Indies players have a bowl. Five of them take wickets. They bowl out India for 294. Surely they've run out of time at this point. No, it's a six-day test match, this one. And they're into the sixth day when this happens. They're batting on a a matting pitch, so it's not exactly deteriorating, um, and it seems like it's pretty good for batting. They've also had two rest days in this test match, Adam, (laughs) but two in a row. Have you ever seen two rest days in a row before? I've seen two in a test match, but not not consecutively. There must have been a reason for that. Um, Because, you know, typically Um, the Sunday was the rest day. There's, and there's when, a Sunday and a Monday, and I right. don't know if the Monday was a, was a public holiday public or something holiday, like that, yeah. and they couldn't play. But, yeah, they play the first four days, then they have two rest days, then they play day five and day six. So, you know, it's, it's not like uh, the Windies should be worn out. There's about three hours left in the match. They're set 274. They don't even bother trying to chase it. Alan Ray, 63, not out. Stolmeyer, 76, not out. None for 142, though. Play some shots! 142 or 55 overs, so they're going at two and a half and over. Could have done it. Didn't want it enough. Uh, and they also draw the third test, the fourth test, and the fifth test of this series. But they do get a win in the second test, so Sonny Ramadin takes five for 26 to get them home in the second test, the man who still holds the record for the most overs bowled in a test innings and probably <laughs> will for the rest of eternity. He takes seven in that second match. Al Valentine, the, the wiry left-arm spinner, takes six. And they win a five-test series, 1-0. What a scoreline. <laughs> what a time it was and how necessary it was in 1960 to play some interesting test cricket because that's what was happening in 1953. Love it. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you to the Corker uh, for sending through. I remember playing uh, footy against a guy called Corker in about under-12s or something like that. He was, um, he, was intimid- he was one of those guys who at 12 looked like he was 22 uh, and scares the shit out of everybody. Um, Lockie McCorkadale. Okay, that's the end of segment one. When we return, we're going to talk about Sri Lanka's sensational victory over England and a bunch of other stuff as well. Believe me. Hi, I'm Dave Warner and you're listening to The Final Word. Final word, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. I neglected to thank our patrons uh, when I was ending segment one. If you want to become one of our patrons, patron.com forward slash the final word. We're making a lot of shows at the moment. I mentioned on The Daily Show yesterday, we've got two huge interviews this week and all of these external episodes to what we, you know, our daily and our story time app. They all take a lot of time. The Daily Shows as well, uh, they're resource heavy uh, productions. The World Cup's going to be much the same. So if you were kind of on the fence about whether you wanted to uh, get on board with us as patrons, please do so. It would be great to have you on board not least for the fact that we have story time 
150 coming up this Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I set a time because it's going to be a live show. And by a live show, I mean you can hit a Zoom link and watch Jeff and me record it. We did it for episode 100. We're going to do it again for episode 150. That'll be 10 a.m. UK time, 7 p.m. Uh, Australian Eastern Standard mm-hmm. Time. There'll be other time zones as well. I'm not sure where everyone's listening, but they're the two I have in my head because I live in the UK and you live in Melbourne. And mm-hmm. the uh, and it's seven hours at the moment. So yeah, 7 p.m. after work on Nine Friday. Hours. At the moment. Nine hours, sorry. That's quite right. Mm. 7 p.m. Um, it would, will be after work on Friday, I suppose, and 10 a.m. if you want to kind of um, sack off work for an hour or so or, or put us um, uh, on a second screen, hiding behind a second tab or, or something along those lines. We'll take questions afterwards. It should be a lot of yeah. fun. So if you want to get on board, maybe Maybe we'll it. try to get it going a bit earlier than that as well just to, you know, I'm sure there'll be some... Kerfuffle and faffing around at the start, so you know, just keep keep an eye on the. Um, if you go to the Patreon page itself, there'll be a post about it at some point as to yeah. whether we get going a bit earlier. But join now, join this week when you hear this. Hit the button. Why not? It'd be great to have you. Discord channel is a beautiful place as well. Patreon.com forward slash the final word. We've been teasing this a couple of times, but England losing to Sri Lanka's women. I, I know I joked a couple of weeks ago they could play, um, they, they they could play a hundred times and and lose once or twice or something like that. Well, they lost twice in a row to Sri Lanka's mighty women. Uh, we talked about the the second T20 international last week at Chelmsford on a on a dust bowl that, that Sri Lanka took full advantage of. Well, at Derby, it was much the same. So they were all out, England, this is, for 116 in 19 overs. Bouchier and Jones were the only players to make it into the 20s. Sri Lanka's spinners went to work. Not least Chamari Atapatu, the captain. I'm so thrilled that Chamari dominated this game. Three for 21 from four. And then she helps them knock it off in, in 17 overs to win three down. She made 44 from 28. So a career highlight, Jeff, for a superstar that we've um, we followed really closely on the final word. I've spent a couple of um, uh, trips uh, uh, covering her at Fairbreak as well. And, you know, she matches it with the very, very best in the world. And now she can say she's led a, a famous series victory over England in England, which would have felt Impossible. No, maybe not impossible, but it would have felt so unlikely when they arrived on these shores to do so so convincingly. Mm. What a triumph. I was, I was surprised she wasn't picked up in the WBBL draft because she was uh, available, Chamariata Patu. And, you know, I mean, we, we all saw what she did during the 2017 World Cup when she absolutely flayed Australia around the place. The, the thing is that at that stage, she didn't have anyone else in the team doing anything with her. She is still by far and away the most important player, but there has been a bit more support and, and doing it over 20 overs is easier than doing it over 50 or sure. more likely. So they, they beat New Zealand um, yep. a couple of months ago, which felt significant at the time. You know, New Zealand have been really they've felt more like a side in decline than a side that's been building over the last couple of years but um, yeah, still a side that generally you'd put on the ladder above Sri Lanka um, knocked them off and then knocked off England in the same year in a T20 series it's a massive achievement considering how under-resourced that Sri Lankan team is you know they get very little in the way of the kind of support that those other teams get you know there's 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 a degree of support with players who are who are given jobs that means that they're able to play and train some of the time uh, but it's it's very uh, kind of informal and and low key compared to what you you're looking at with the England players so i mean yeah there were a few players rested but so what that 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 really shouldn't have made the difference but yeah it, it was it was that sri lankan style again of um, choking the run rate and then Adapatu 
doing enough off the top scoring 44 quickly taking a big chunk out of the required total um, and having enough of the rest of the team go with her to be able to run it down so viewing this through a wider lens, uh, your point there, Jeff, about Sri Lanka having beaten New Zealand and England in quick succession. You know, the challenge with women's cricket is that there is a multi-speed economy, right? In men's cricket, Sri Lanka knocking off England in a T20, well, okay, that'll happen. That's that's just considered part of it because of the, the relative development. But with you know, Sri Lanka and Pakistan and Bangladesh and to a far lesser extent Zimbabwe in the women's game, uh, they are so far behind, or they have started so far mm. behind the countries that have made investments in the last 10 years like Australia and England. And then there's that group in the middle. You mentioned New Zealand, who are a team in decline. Uh, South Africa have got endless internal dramas at the moment. The West Indies have fallen off a cliff since winning the World Cup in the T20 format back in 2016. All of that's linked to professionalism. All of that's linked to money and stability and, uh, and, and so on. I think it just goes to bolster the case for a more socialised pot of money there. And this is no criticism, but Elisa Healy signed a contract, a three-year extension with the Sydney Sixers today. And that feels like a really big deal, right? Australia and Australian superstars have the ability to earn shitloads of money. And Elisa Healy, being one of the greatest Australian players ever, is cashing in, and rightly so. And she'll play well into her mid to maybe even late 30s, she'll be representing uh, both Australia and the Sydney Sixers and playing in the WPL and playing, if she wishes to, in the 100 and all these other competitions that are that are bobbing up and that, that is just wonderful. Mm. But the test for women's cricket is can the system allow for um, Sri Lankan players to go on a similar journey or players from Pakistan or Bangladesh who in men's cricket all get these chances. They're all in the domestic leagues and so on. So bridging the gap is going to be really important there and also finding a way to stabilise things in New Zealand, South Africa, and the Windies that have traditionally been in, in that second tier and India in the middle of all of that who've made that rapid transition over the last seven years with the, the 2017 Women's World Cup right in the middle of that. Mm. So, yeah, I think always with women's cricket, we've got to be focused on the bigger picture and, and so it is this week. Um, and Sri Lanka, you know, it might be the biggest upset in a bilateral series ever. I mean, you know, we, we had Bangladesh win the Asia Cup over India in, in 2018 and we use that often as a reference point with, with Bangladesh. Well, well, so this will be for Sri Lanka. I mean, that's... As far as scale of upsets go, that Bangladesh win had to be right up there. I mean, you had Thailand coming through the qualifiers, um, looking every chance to qualify for the, the last 50-over World Cup, yep. only to be cut off by the COVID cancellation. So that might have been a rival to this had they been able to get up there. But yeah, I mean, not just a one-off match win, but following it up to win the decider, win a three-match series and do it in England as well. I, I think we'll still be looking back at this in 10 years' time and uh, in wonderment that it actually happened. There was a return to earth of sorts uh, in Durham on Saturday, uh, a quick kill in the first one-day international. They were all out for 106 in 30 over Sri Lanka after batting first. On the way into that series, we learnt that Sophie Eccleston's injury is more serious than first thought. She's had surgery on her right shoulder, so... Not only will she miss the big bash, I suppose her whole winter will be jeopardised um, by that more serious injury, albeit to a non-bowling arm. Um, of interest here was Mahika Goa and, uh, and Lauren Filer both made their one-day international debuts, and they both um, took three wickets exactly as you wish them to do. So Mahika bowled a 
gorgeous delivery to Chamari Atapatu to take her off stump out of the ground. Uh, one day wicket number one for her, acknowledging that she used to play for the UAE in 20 over cricket, but never played a, a one day for them because they don't have one day status, air quotes. And Lauren Filer got three wickets with three brutes. One of them was a, a snorter up on the throat at 76 mile an hour. So, you know, generation next has arrived for England in terms of their, their fast bowling options. I know Mahika's not out and out fast compared to Filer, but with their extra height, I know I've told this story on the podcast before, but I stood back to back with her at Fairbreak because it was reported that she's six foot one and I'm about you know, six, two and a half or something like that. And she towers over me. So she's at least six, four and, and mm. at age 17, you'd think she's going to get bigger again. You know, people tend to grow an inch or two uh, when they are, are in that age bracket. So she might end up like six, six, which is such a point of difference in women's cricket and file up bowls gas. So those two together, I know Izzy Wong's um, off the radar a little bit at the moment, but you can see the direction they're moving. So the opportunities to be a 60 mile an hour bowler with a few tricks, like there'll still probably still be room for a bowler like that in an international side, um, but it won't mm. be a, a side dominated by bowlers like that, like it might have been four or five years ago. So it's another step in that progression uh, for women's cricket. And they knocked off those runs in 18 overs, by the way, with Beaumont, Knight and Lamb all contributing. They're Mai Bouchier, um, on one day international debut as well. Um, young, not, 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 not super young. She might be 24 or 25 now. She's more known for a 20 over cricket, but 17, uh, not out from 17 at the end to um, clinch victory and hit the winning runs. She was on debut, she, eh? <laughs> the, It's like the broadening talent pool as well. That's, that's where faster bowlers come from. You yep. know, that's, that's where it, it's finding people who are at the further ends of the physical spectrum, finding people, finding athletes who are more anomalous compared to the general population. And that's like whatever your specialty, you know, if you're incredibly good at darts because you have really stable wrists and hands or if you're <laughs> incredibly good at cycling because you have crazy VO2 max and you're able to absorb more oxygen right. into your muscles than a normal person. Like there are you, – you find – athletes at the parameters the further you put the parameters out the more likely it is you'll find anomalous physical characteristics and that's where you will find you know six foot four women bowlers who can hoop it in at pace and smash the stumps out of the ground yeah it, it's it's exciting the, the more women you get playing the game the more we're going to find uh, players like this and characters like this and everybody rainford brent uh, has been advancing this conversation through the ACE program, uh, saying that you know the more we widen the pool, um, the more we look for women athletes who aren't traditionally from cricketing backgrounds. It's going to do precisely you know, what you say. I know that like Hayley Matthews was a champion javelin thrower, wasn't she? I know she played cricket mm. as a kid, but the two things can't be unrelated, right? That that Matthews has enjoyed the sort of career that she has with the, with that natural strength through her shoulders and and so on. And yeah, it, it'll be uncomfortable for some people, I'm sure, right? Like there'll be people who. Uh, Jumping into England teams who don't come through the traditional England pathway, who may not have played, you know, in the county under-14 team or whatever it is, who are going to end up fast-tracked and, and that'll be, yeah, there'll be some discomfort there. But mm. that's all part of the transition and that's got to be a good thing with more competitive tension right at the very top. Uh, Jeff, we're, we're nearly through the county championship. We've got two more rounds after the one that started mm -hmm. yesterday. We won't bother doing day one from yesterday other than to say that Zach does, Crawley... Does Australian domestic cricket start before England finishes again this year <laughs> or...? Uh, that's not going to happen this year. I'm just thinking back to when the WBBL starts. No, the WBBL starts after... 
the final. Yes, that's right. So it's going to be after. There won't be the crossover that we had a couple of years ago during COVID when the dates were a little bit out Mm. of whack. But the final county day is the 29th of September, I'm pretty sure. Um, So So we'll have about four days gap, four or five days, something like that. Yeah, you've got it. So, yeah, Surrey are very close to clinching uh, back-to-back titles. I, I did the game last week where they destroyed Warwickshire and effectively ended Warwickshire's season. Uh, they made 396. Folks made a graceful century. The kind of forgotten man of England set up at the moment. I'm sure he'll be there in India. Got He's to not take that forgotten. India. People talk about him more than they talk about <laughs> Harry Brook. True, true. So, I heard about Ben Folks during the Ashes more than any player who was in the Ashes. Well, I'll, I'll say so this. I'll say this much. Every He's, day. He's, one of, He's, had, He's got one of the best records in England with the bat this year in domestic cricket so he won't be far away Warwickshire were all out for 161 and 138 following on they batted for barely 70 overs collectively they were nowhere Dan Worrell took nine for the match he's only 32 and no longer is it just me saying that he's going to play for England one day last year when I was banging on about this people kind of like stared at me like what are you talking about yeah he qualifies Mm. next year or the year it might be in about you know, 15 or 16 months from now, he'll have met his residency qualification. Um, he'll only be you know, 33 or maybe just 34. He's taken nearly 50 wickets this year, took about 40 last year. He's clearly the best bowler in Surrey's lineup. So, nine there for him. Kemar Roach is back. You've got Jordan Clark bowling beautifully. They get a chance to finish the finish it off mm-hmm. against North Hants next week at home. So, um, How yeah. have they not finished it off yet? All season, all I've been know, hearing is, oh, sorry, sorry, you're in the lead. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, it's going to be sorry again. They still haven't done it. What are you doing? Stop wasting our time. Finish the, it off. The, I guess the reason is Essex have had a good season as well, right? So both sides. Essex can theoretically catch them. They're 17 points behind. And if you if you max out, you, you get 24 points. If everything goes right, you can hit 24 points. So if Essex, okay. if Essex have, you know, three more 24-pointers... They'll put pressure on uh, on, Sucks, on Surrey rather in, in the last two games of the season. So Essex can catch them. They had a big win over Middlesex uh, by 297 runs. All the focus on Josh DeCares last week who took eight for uh, in the first innings and 10 for the match for Middlesex. But um, Essex mm-hmm. still made 300 plus and they bowled out Middlesex for 179 and 147. You know, this is always the problem with Middlesex. Their batting's just not strong enough. Six wickets for Jamie Porter in the first dig. He's probably the county player of the year. Average 17 with the ball. He, he won that prize back in, oh, I reckon, 2016, 2017, when he was on the cusp of the test squad. And who knows, maybe his time will come again uh, in the post-Anderson era. Simon Harmer took Pfeiffer, as expected, in the second dig on, on that Bunsen we were already talking about earlier in the podcast mm-hmm. at Chelmsford there. Hampshire are going to fall short again. They'll probably finish third. Such a good team, you know. They've got such a great bowling lineup, And they win again. They flog Somerset. But they're, they're not going to have enough time to, to catch up on, on Surrey. Interesting in this game was that Liam Dawson, after taking seven for in the one-day semi-final last week, made 115 with the bat, backed it up with seven wickets in a thumping mm-hmm. victory over Somerset. I wonder, I wonder, George DeBell's big on this, whether that he might get he might leapfrog into either the World Cup squad or maybe as one of the reserves, acknowledging that Liam Dawson's been in every single England World Cup squad since 2016, either as one of the, the 15 or, or the three substitutes, alternates, or, or even mm. the test squad. You know, we know that... Other, um, I think it's the other way around. I mean, it's what George was reporting during the week was that Liam Dawson was supposed to be in the World Cup squad and then Stokes reversed his retirement and Dawson was told, sorry, mate, 
Uh, no, yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. But, no, no, I, I did see that as well. But I guess my, uh, my my thing is maybe he'll he'll even in this really late run. I mentioned before they've got still two and a half weeks in theory to change their minds on their squad. But more likely the Indian Test squad. So their mm. their their first spinner will be Jack Leach. They won't have Mo and Ali. You'd think Ray and Ahmed's going to be part of it too, spinning the ball away. But Dawson, well, Jacks might be experienced. Jacks batting, I mean, yeah, Jacks batting eight. Devoured. Jacks, well, I can I can see Jacks batting eight and bowling. He's very tidy, very very tidy, Jacks. But you know, if they want one more spinner who bats, well, Dawson will be mm. front and centre there. So Hampshire win again. Lanks pump a hapless Northamptonshire who are going down with a bullet. They're last by a long way now in Division One. Uh, they were bowled out for two thirty two. Then Lanks made five hundred and twenty four. Josh Bahannon, uh, he's passed one thousand runs for the season. One of our or one of my faves anyway. He's um, great mates with Glenn Maxwell, so hoping he gets picked at some point. Uh, North Hants were all out for two sixty six in the second dig, so they lost by more than an inning. Sam Whiteman, WA Sam Whiteman, made two half centuries in the game. I'm looking forward to hearing what Sam Whiteman has to say about his county spell when it's mm-hmm. all over in a couple of weeks. Uh, so yeah, in Division One. Uh, Surrey, Essex, Hampshire, then down the bottom, um, North Hants on 61 points. Kent and Middlesex will be uh, trying to stay above the fold, if you like, in the last couple of games. Division 2, Durham are going up. The Mad Max fold out. Um, <laughs> if, you, if you if you fold it in, you see Kent Cricket Club. <laughs> I was thinking more like above the fold in, in, um, in American mm. broadsheet newspaper parlance there. Division 2, Durham are definitely going up from where they are now. They beat Sussex by... Seven wickets at home. Uh, it's just rain and pots, rain and pots every week. Those two pots got a gig in the England uh, white ball team for the Island. One day is coming up. He picked up Pajara early on. Alex Lees makes another century. I think that's five in the summer. Uh, he's mm-hmm. made uh, twelve hundred runs, I reckon now. So great response from him. To be fair, like you know, getting dropped out of baseball land and going back to county championship cricket and totally bossing it. So he might have another opportunity down the path. Baz the forgotten man, the forgotten man, the forgotten man. <laughs> There's a bit of a Dutch theme in Division Two here, Jeff. So Baz mm. Delita made a century for Durham. What a gun! Well, we love Baz Delita. More Dutch players coming up in a sec. Pajara made a fifty in the second dig, but oh, way too far behind after Durham made 509. Matt Parkinson, speaking of forgotten men, took fourfer in both innings for Durham, where he's finishing up as a lone E. He's, he's signed on next year with Kent, but he's at Durham mm-hmm. still at the moment. They won't take him to India because leg spin is just fundamentally misunderstood in England. It's my, mm-hmm. I'm not the first person to say that. I won't be the last. And, uh, you know, the way that people speak about Parkinson, oh, he just bowls too slowly. Just bowls too slowly. Bowls the same speed as Warney bowled, you know. Bowls too slowly. Because mm-hmm. you know? everyone's so mm-hmm. conditioned to watching wrist spinners do what Adil Rashid does in white ball yeah. cricket that they've... Anyway. That's a rant yeah, for another there, day. There is, there is room. There is room for Rispin that is not Imran Tahir. Yeah, know? yeah. You don't, you don't have to be a medium pacer who right. brings you, you know, comes over the top of the ball. And, and I'm not that, saying that... That's, that's not the only way to do it. And I'm not saying that Parkinson's warm, by the way, but I think it's so reductive about this pace thing that keeps coming back over and over. And he hasn't had a great two years, Parkinson, since his one weird test match at, um, against New Zealand where he was in as the concussion sub for Jack Leach. But it doesn't hurt that he's had a really good spell with Durham. A clutch win for Leicestershire yeah. to still have a chance. I've been on this horse all year, Jeff, that Leicestershire getting promoted uh, could happen, having been up there to interview Peter Hanscom at the start of their campaign. They needed to defeat Gloucestershire at Grace Road, and they did by eight wickets. It was a really low-scoring game. 159 for Gloss, 204 for Leicestershire. Rishi Patel, 73. Great season uh, at Grace Road. Uh, Gloucestershire then made um, 212. We are Mulder. 
Um, love that name. Took four for 168. Could have been a nervy chase, given it was a low-scoring game. In walks Colin Ackerman. Uh, it's um, uh, important to note at this point, it's the 30th anniversary on the day of recording of the first episode oh. of The X-Files airing um, on oh. the day that you bring Vian Mulder up. And he's not in the World Cup squad for South no. Africa, but he should be. I do want to believe. He, he's very good. He's one of the players who um, who Neil Manthorpe has said might end up in that test squad um, going to New Zealand later this year. Although I'm, mm. or maybe I'm misremembering that. It doesn't matter. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. It might also be appropriate that Catatonia, Mulder, and Scully was played at Cardiff the other day. Jeff, I'm not sure if you heard that in the daily. I made that my Hall of Fame moment. The two Catatonia songs were played at Cardiff, Wales's own. Yes. Yeah, so Cole Ackerman, our second Dutch international in the conversation, 93 not out in a hurry to get them over the line by eight wickets. They've got Yorkshire next at home. You know, mm-hmm. they should beat them. And they finish the season against Durham, who'll have Division 2 wrapped up by then. If Leicester should go win-win, they can go from fifth to second. It's a pretty narrow gap there. Speaking of Yorkshire, Isotopes win a game. Isotopes win a game. Yorkshire's first win since the fucking prehistoric era. They defeat Derbyshire at Scarborough. The captain was a Triceratops <laughs> the last time at Yorkshire. Uh, so, um, yeah, Yorkshire... Went big. They made 500 plus. Matt Revis, 106. There were six scores between 36 and 86 in Derbyshire. Were all out short of 300 both times. Don Bess um, took four for um, another one of these England spinners who won't go to India and shouldn't in Bess's case. He's got a lot of development to do as a as a four-day bowler. He's been on that merry-go-round of spinners and low knees and so on. He's back to Somerset next year, actually. And Derbyshire, sadly, trending down after a promising start to the season. They're now third last in Division 2. And our final game, Worcestershire, a Clutch win over Glamorgan. So they're in second and third, respectively, remembering that two teams go up, one will go up with Durham. This was at New Road and and Worcestershire made 284, Glamorgan made 170. And Dutch hero from the World Cup qualifier, Logan Van Beek, took four for 42 in the first dig, four for 46 in the second dig. And they needed him as well because they... They had a collapse, Worcestershire, um, the second time around. Mm-hmm. Um, so they needed to defend about uh, about 270-odd and bowled them out for 179. So the third Dutchman to play his role uh, in victories in Division 2, Logan Van Beek. So that puts Worcestershire in second spot on 138. Glamorgan 123, Sussex 113. So it'll be a race in three. And Leicestershire 111, where everything would need to go right for that final promotion spot. There you go. go. There's my caddy run, run. Jay. There, I, I, I liked it. I learned a lot. There was a lot of Dutch going on in there. The, the, the Logan van Beek super over and then the Buzz to lead a final match where he makes the ton and makes five for, I mean, th- there are a couple of the most extraordinary solo performances and, and well, that's got them where they are, 10-team World Cup. Now, the Yorkshire thing, this story that yeah. came up during the week that the Rajasthan Royals would like to buy... Yorkshire. I'm trying to get my head around this because I know that Yorkshire are in a lot of debt. I know that they owe Colin Graves or, you know, whatever organisation he's set up, millions of pounds. And there was all of that back and forth about whether he would extend the loan time if he was made chair of the of the club again. And yep. then that was shot down because of his involvement previously. And they've got that, you know, the, the time to, to pay it back was running out and all the rest of it. So they're in a vulnerable position. But I'm not good at money. I'm not a person who understands money. Some people understand how to get rich and and I do not. But why is buying a county cricket club going to be helpful if your interest is making money? Well, uh, 
because 25 million quid is chump change if you're the Rajasthan Royals. You know, this is what I mentioned before about the world just, you know, spinning on its axis in an unusual way. Who would have thought that the Rajasthan Royals would be interested in four-day cricket? They've got a strong interest in English cricket. You know, like the Royals mm. typically have more England players in their setup than other um, IPL teams, notably you know, Archer and Butler and so on. Archer previously, you know, I'm trying to say, I mean, I don't know who plays for whom, but they have in the past enjoyed a lot of um, England talent. So Matt Hughes had this yarn in the Daily Mail and he doesn't get much wrong, Matt. Yeah, it, it all relates to the, the Graves Trust being owed 15 million quid. Well, you know, you do the math. If they make 25 mil out of this and they can clear their debt and so it will go, it'll be presented to the board as early as uh, this month uh, in the story, so it's said. So it's been a members club for 160 years. They're also talking to a Saudi prince about a loan in this newspaper story. So, you know, we haven't really... Well, that never goes wrong. There's, yeah, no, there's never any downside to that. I think it's fine. Um, well, you I mean, always can, can... go to a meeting if they ask you to go to a meeting in some obscure <laughs> location. You should always... Yeah, definitely. Just, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, just What's the worst that can happen? Yeah, forget about the bone saw in the corner. Yeah, yeah. The, I, I don't know. I really don't know where this goes. It's, it's hard. It feels thin edge of the wedge stuff, right, doesn't it? But but what's the point? What's, what's the advantage? Like, like you talk about a licence to print money. If you want a licence to lose money, it's a county cricket club. They're not lucrative enterprises. Nobody's making coin. No one's cashing in on the riches of county cricket. Well, you, you, what, you, you, What's the benefit? We all assume that, but with an enormous capital injection, a club at the bottom of the barrel, at the bottom of Division 2, they've gone through the most traumatic off-field scandal over the last few years, which continues... I think the bigger piece here is that you know, forfeiting the right to be a members club, you know, who represents them around the ECB board table? Mm. You know, there are there are wider ramifications. So I think that it and who has the right more to, to well, who has the right to decide that it will be privately? Well, it, it'll be well. The, the board represents the members, right? So I don't know whether there'll need sure. to be an extra level of, of, con, of consultation with the members to, to cede it, but. There'll be some infrastructure in place for this, I'm sure. In Surely terms of there'd their, need to be a governance. majority vote of the membership. Well, yeah, but I don't know how their governance works. I haven't, you know, I don't know. But it, it, it feels from the report that it's more to do with the executive mm. recommending it to the board and, and that process taking place. I suppose the members could roll the board, right? They're in their gift as members to mount a challenge to the to the existing board, like any board in a mm. democratic process. But yeah, like it's it's to me, it's more. Um, what does that do to? Um, yeah, maybe it's to do with influencing ECB decision making. If this is not the only club, let's say four or five clubs gets bought, then you've got a block of votes that can serve the interests that are external to the England domestic game. I don't know, um, mm. but it didn't feel good when that news report came out. But uh, things seldom do <laughs> at the moment, really, on, on this front. Just staying in domestic cricket quickly before we take our final break. Victoria have named Will Sutherland as their Sheffield Shield captain. So Peter Hanscom uh, will stay on as the one-day skipper. He's done a great job with Victoria yeah. over the last few years. A younger team. It's been Hanscom as captain, Chris Rogers as coach in a, in a in a period of transition. So it kind of makes sense that Will Sutherland, who's a member of that generation who are coming through, will, will lead that four-day team. He had a great season with bat and ball made 100 in the Shield final, took wickets there as well. So you would think that Sutherland's not a mile away from test consideration and um, often we see these young guys who are made captain of their state early in their career end up captaining their country as well. So and that's a, a little bit of a, a watch this space for a guy that everyone's been tracking since he was a teenager on mm. the basis of who his old man is. So congratulations to Will Sutherland, who I um, who I got out when he was 15. So yes, we'll claim that. <laughs> <laughs> Which you have brought up, I think, literally every time his name has come up on the show. That'll be the last it's time. Just... <laughs> Moratorium on me mentioning having him caught in the gully um, about a decade ago, whatever it was just 
incredible, I'm sure, incredible piece of bowling, I'm sure. Uh, just, I think, just yeah. Foxed I think him. It, I think it was pretty good nut from memory. Anyway, don't matter. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's the end of uh, segment two. After the break, as I promised before, we're going to be having a, a conversation about the England physical disability side with James Norden and Will Flynn. Hi, I'm Brian Roddle. You're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. All right, as promised, joining me today, I've got James Norden and Will Flynn, who both play for England in the physical disability side. Thanks, gents, for jumping on with me. As I mentioned earlier in the program, we've been playing some cricket together for the Lord's Tabs of late, so I've been able to see, uh, James, your, your lovely little outduckers and Will, your glorious clipstream midwicket like Mark War or, or something like that. But the real cricket you guys play is for your country. And we've done an abysmal job on the final word of documenting disability cricket over the last six or seven years, and we want to get that right. We thought um, that you'd be a great two people to start having that conversation with. So welcome to the show. Flinny, I'll start with you, Will. So you played a game on television last week on Sky. It was the domestic final where you two played against each other. We played the previous day. You made a lovely half century at Wormsley. Didn't quite convert that to the TV game, but talk us through the thrill that he's playing in a televised game with with pundits who are typically doing international cricket. Yeah, no, uh, well, first off, thanks for having me on. But yeah, no, it was was a once, once in a lifetime experience, really. And I think Last year, last year I didn't get to play in the DPL final because I was I was actually in Scotland with with work at the time, and I think everyone who watched it, everyone who was probably involved within the disability game itself, and who was part of those core sixty players that played in the first DPL, probably we didn't give the best lighting, I suppose, to disability cricket. I think I know the same team that I played for in this year's team, the Pirates, bundled out for I think it was eighty nine or something. I think it was in 17 overs so it wasn't really the best first impression of the TPL and then this year I think availability was a lot better in our squad and certainly across the whole tournament of who was on Sky and, and playing in front of the cameras I think was a was a real privilege I think all the nerves that had been there from last year had disappeared and obviously to have Daggers commentating on it to have Mark Butcher on it and then to have some representatives as well from Disability Cricket so you had Neil Bradshaw Ian mm. Martin and then from the women's game as well, you had Tammy Beaumont on comms at some point as well. That was that was just brilliant. I think obviously having it at Derby, who were I think were hosting one of their first international games as well. Obviously following the England Sri Lanka T20 that followed afterwards. So having it there and having it with a double header and just promoting disability cricket in general. That was obviously what the day was about, as much as personal milestones and, and nicking off early live on Sky TV. And <laughs> Norse has been constantly reminding me about that. But um, yeah, no, it was a, it was a fantastic day and, and a privilege to be a part of. James, from your perspective, working in the professional game, in the women's game, as you do with the Sunrisers, I suppose you've got a pretty good perspective on seeing the progression of a type of cricket that doesn't get a lot of attention, or didn't rather get a lot of attention with women's cricket. Now it's front and centre. And, and I, I'd imagine it, it's the desire for you fellas as well, that over the next five to ten years, people will become more and more conditioned to watching you play on TV, but understanding your stories and where you fit in. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's why the platform the DPL gives and having the final, the finalist double header with England women works really well in terms of trying to grow our products and why it's it's really important that you know, the, the tournament gets streamed and that you know Sky are picking up the final and that there is an interest from you know those kind of com- commentators and journalists like yourself to to try and get involved and grow and grow the platform because I genuinely believe it's a really good product and. I, I think Flynn nailed it. The final this year was was really good. You know, Jake Oakes hit the Pirates hit thirty two off the last over. You had George Greenway running in and bowling 
you know, touching 80 miles an hour for us. And I think, you know, by anyone's standards, like that is really good cricket. Sometimes have, I guess, a, a little bit of a, a stereotype around what they maybe think disability cricket is or some preconceptions. But actually, I, I think anyone who watched the final, that's really challenged them. So that, that kind of, that kind of platform was really important. And just on the sunrise, but it was really nice. Actually, I went into first team training at Radlett the next day to help support that. And uh, all the players were coming up to me and talking about it. And, you know, quite a lot of them had watched it and were really interested in, you know, Callum Flynn's story. He batted really well. And, you know, what, what's his condition? How did he end up where he is? And, you know, that kind of thing and that kind of recognition from the professional game as well is really nice. Cause again, it, it kind of proves that there's a product there that people are genuinely interested in. Hopefully, like the women's game has over the last couple of years, will we'll continue to grow. I think that's a great point about a lack of understanding as to what it is. And we see that in the Paralympics. And I'm just purely a viewer on this front. I've never covered disability sport before, but I don't think many people have a, a good grasp on what it mean so maybe will if you can help with this a little bit so just to educate our audience more broadly uh, how does one end up being eligible to play in physical disability cricket well physical disability cricket it's it's, when you look at it from multiple different points of perspective but physical disability cricket is essentially defined as someone who has an impairment that will limit anything to do with their running their walking their fielding catching anything involved with cricket so before, before you go and play for England in the county setup, you'll go through a process where it's called profiling. So they will assess your mobility, your speed, your skills compared to a, a normal person as such, an able-bodied person. So for someone like myself, someone like Liam Thomas in the side, who it's quite noticeable we have a, a prosthetic and we wear that, it's quite easy to understand that you know, we are naturally going to be limited by it, where, for example, if you look at James and his hip, something that might not be preconceived or you might not naturally notice it until maybe he runs, for example, where there is a slight a limp or a slight difference in the way that there is a running technique for maybe someone who is who is able-bodied. I think that's that's the only really way you can tell, but I certainly... Within our game, we have a we have a multiple range of disabilities. So we've got cerebral palsy, missing missing arms, missing legs, amputees, um, dyspraxia. Obviously, you had Callum, Cam Flynn, Jamie Goodwin, who both had cancer as as teenagers growing up. So they've they've had many bones removed and had you know Cal's got two two metal knees and and Jamie had. If I'm correct in thinking, I think he had his his femur removed. I think it was from a from an aggravated um, tumor that was that was cancerous. So, yeah, there's there's a there's a range of disability cricket. But I think if anyone was to come and, and come and watch us, I don't think you'd you'd really notice that because we, throughout the summer we played against numerous academy sides and second elevens, and we don't actually play against many teams that are physically disabled unless it's on international tours which is probably one of the barriers of why we want to try and then increase and promote physical disability cricket so yeah there's there's a lot of range of of what is involved within physical disability cricket and and I'd like to think that it's just going to keep evolving throughout the next 10 years 15 years and that's just the way it's going to be, I think. So, Yeah, that all tallies. I mean, the limited amount I know is that Australia doesn't have a physical disability team. It seems a bit odd that so much effort and emphasis has been put on disability cricket in Australia, which is brilliant, but there's this missing crucial category with players like yourself. Whereas in other parts of the world, like in England, uh, they've been all over this with international cricket 
part of the offering. Can you elaborate on that a little bit, Will? Yes, yes. It's we well we the last the last international series that was held um, was in 2019 in Worcester, in and around grounds Worcester, with the final new road. So we had India, Bangladesh, Afghanistan, and Pakistan within our round robin tournament. But this is the thing, as you were saying, you know, in in Australia. You know, obviously, you don't have a physical disability team. It's it's based on the learning difficulties, uh, the hearing impaired, and the blind. So the pool of players that we're getting to face all, all come from subcontinents, Asia, everywhere, the Middle East, because that's not that's not through any any fault of their own or anything. It's because you still have diseases that rage out there like polio. So naturally, they're going to have bigger pools of players to choose from. I think. Correct me if I'm wrong in this, Nords. I think we only have about. I think it's four or five thousand registered disability players within within the UK. It might not even be that. But in India, if you look at Pakistan, they have a whole league of about sixty thousand players that they can pick a ball from. So essentially, you know, you've got tiny little England that is practically going against the whole of Asia and the Middle East. So it's one of those things, but I think it's any cricketer's dream, isn't it, to go and play an Ashes series, whether it's at home, whether it's away. And I think that's the one thing that the the PD side are probably now missing or missing out on and have a lack of is that is the attention that we potentially could have with Australia and obviously it's through through no fault of our own but it's one of those things that we can we can beat the drum for and who knows in the next five ten years you know touring Australia like the like the LD lads and the deaf guys and the and the hearing impaired you know it'll be an absolute privilege to go out there and, and win an Ashes series it'd be just the dream. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, let's let's hope that you know uh, there'll be people listening to this in Australia who Fingers can, crossed. can get their Fingers ar- get their ass into gear. Uh, <laughs> Fingers ja- crossed. James, uh, I mentioned you, you sort of work in in the professional game and, and disability crickets now under the umbrella of uh, the ECB in ways that it wouldn't have been in the past. What does that mean in practical terms as far as the way that you're able to fund your cricket and ensure that it isn't just a hobby, but it's something you can really dedicate yourself to as English England representatives. Yeah, so we're really fortunate with the, the support and backing we get from, from the ECB. And that is, yeah, as Finney's kind of alluded to, quite unique to disability cricket in this country in the sense that the ECB have direct sort of ownership and running of the national teams. From a practical sense, that means we, small things like we wear the exact same kit as the men and the women do. And every time that gets an update, that gets rolled across all of us. They're very good in support in terms of it doesn't cost us anything to play for England. So everything that we would need in order to make that possible is kind of provided for us. So travel expenses are put into place. When we go on tour, that's all kind of covered and laid on for us. It's obviously all sort of provided and they do a good job as well of putting us in touch with people who can support us and need sponsorships or potentially trying to get access to gym facilities and stuff away from cricket. And we have access to... Yeah, very good facilities when we train, such as Loughborough and we train a lot of edge basketball. So we do really well from that perspective and we're really fortunate that they invest in it as much as they do. That is also, you know, and DPL's proof in it, that they are continuing to up that investment. So they quoted about £250,000 as the amount of money they put in to make that competition and give us that platform, which has been really appreciated. They've just announced that we're going to start receiving tour fees. So when we go out on tour, in order to help guys obviously cater for the fact that we're going to have to take time off work to make that possible to go and represent our country. We're, we're going to get that financial support to make, help make that possible and make it so a case that you can't not go and for England because you couldn't financially afford it. So 
it's heading in that direction. Hopefully, we are moving in the direction of professionalization as well at some point down the line, a little bit like in the women's game or yeah, sort of moving towards at least semi-professional. But yeah, their support is absolutely amazing. We're very fortunate to have it in this time. You mentioned touring fees. You might need those touring fees if this trip to India gets up over the winter. I know you're both champing at the bit to get over there and have missed out over the last couple of winters due to kind of logistical reasons and tours being called off and COVID played a role in that as well, understandably. But from your perspectives, and we'll start with Will, are you pretty confident it's going to go ahead later in the year and, and early next year? And and, and on top of that, uh, how brilliant would it be if you got the chance to wear the three lines in India in a proper series across multiple games? I'll be careful what I say, yeah, but... <laughs> Um, I think obviously there is there is still uncertainty because Nords obviously alluded earlier. The ECB have full control of obviously the disability sides. Where in India there are multiple boards for their for their men, their women, and their disability teams. We were obviously the first tour that we meant to go on was in in February 2022 or 23, whichever one it was. There might have been two that might have been scheduled, but. The first one was definitely cancelled because of COVID reasons and visas and just the non-safety of it. This one that we had or that we were meant to have in India, we almost pretty much got the go-ahead. The dates were confirmed and then the BCCI were saying that they needed all of the outgrounds for the six-week period. So there was going to be a lack of training facilities and then to actually get game time with logistics, it was practically going to be impossible. But I... I would say this January one now, it's probably the most confident we've been. Um, Ian Martin, the head of disability cricket, he met with the, with the Indian counterparts about a month ago to make sure everything was okay, in line with the blind games as well and logistics. So the message, the message kind of changed of these are the dates you can come to when would you actually like to come. So I, I think the plan is it's probably likely going to be towards the end of January 2024, probably I would say likely the third and fourth week. But again, with these things, visa applications, safety measures, are we going to have the correct facilities, the hotels? You know, we just don't know at the moment. Not not through any of the faults of the ECBs or anything. It's because we need that we need that clear message from the Indian Cricket Board and the or the relative cricket boards that are running their disability out there to give us the green light. But we're all hopeful. So. I think our first our first training camp is going to be end of November, but I would imagine we hear before then that we are going to go out to India. We'll be we'll be in Loughborough, Edgbaston, cranking up the heat, 45 degrees in the indoor school, doing a lot of running and a lot of work on spin. So, yeah, fingers crossed we can get out there, but there's not really a a huge amount we can do at the moment just to kind of cross our fingers and and hope we go out to India, which is obviously the pinnacle as well of, of test match cricket isn't it going out there and playing out there in front of um, well, I imagine we'll get some pretty good crowds and TV coverage out there as well on their local stations so yeah that would be another dream to to get out there and seeing as that would be mine and, and James's first tour abroad as well it would be it would be pretty special Absolutely. And James, the kind of more with your administrator hat on, the fact that disability cricket is all under the same umbrella. You mentioned in India, it, it's sort of segmented, but even within um, the intellectual disability team and the, the blind team and, and others that have been uh, touring away from home, but given a profile, I suppose, I know the ECB are always talking about disability cricket in a way that wouldn't have been the case, let's say five or 10 years ago or something like that, that concentrated activity working together that you're not in competition uh, how important that is to making sure that trips like this happen too 
Yeah, 100%. And, you know, we're always trying to trying to raise the profile of the game and that it goes back to why things like the DPL final we played in the other week are so important because it, it does just help push that message out there a little bit more as here's what we're doing. And it, the growth of the game is really important as well because and it, you know, the ECB are obviously really keen for a wider sense to try and grow the game for as many people as possible and it proves to people that cricket really can be a game for them. And I think one of the challenges a lot of us faced when we were growing up as cricketers is that we, we never really saw people like us playing cricket. And I think that's one of the things that makes the England disability stuff so special is actually now, hopefully, with the game sort of getting a slightly bigger profile and these tours happening and, you know, the coverage that disability cricket is starting to get is hopefully young people with a disability can see people like themselves playing cricket, playing to a really high level and genuinely believe that cricket can be a game for them. And that's a possibility for them as well. And I think that goes a little bit beyond, obviously, you know, as, as athletes, as you know, we, we want to win as many games as cricket as possible. We want to win games of cricket for our country. That's why we do it. But there is a broader sense in trying to grow the game that I think we're very, very aware of. And, you know, days like Wednesday were, were really important for that. And, you know, these tours to India and things like that and the coverage that happens around that is really important to make that possible. That's a lovely note to leave it on, that idea of uh, your stories can help inspire others and get more people playing cricket, which is a, uh, a great thing that everyone, I'm sure, can get right behind. Uh, James Norden, Will Flynn, uh, we'll keep a very close eye on your uh, international careers, on your tour to India. Maybe we'll check in when you're in India. You can let us know how you're getting on, provided that takes place, and fingers crossed that is the case. And uh, thanks for uh, telling uh, your story to the final word today. Cheers, Colin. Thanks very much. No worries. Cheers, Colin. Final word as we say goodbye. Thanks to James Norton and Will Flynn, two lovely young men and fine cricketers as well. We'll keep a close eye on their progress and hopefully we'll get to track them in India over the winter. Jeff, as we uh, depart today, a reminder of the Zoom watch along for Storytime 150. Uh, Storytime 149 was an absolute belter. So if you haven't listened to that in the feed, I can recommend a listen back. And I don't often listen back to our episodes anymore because, you know, self conscious reasons and whatever but I thought I'll give that a go when it came up in my feed and I and I enjoyed listening to how we dealt with those stories I forgot that we spoke for half an hour before we even dealt with a number as well so I haven't been able to definitively work out whether our 50 year olds play first class cricket yet that game's been postponed presumably due to the monsoonal rain, the rain. in Sri Lanka so yeah. whether they've gotten on since uh, but I, I sense I'll that game will what, be washed out if, if the if the fucking weather ruins this for us, I don't care about the Asia Cup. <laughs> when it, in comparison to this, if like sure, everyone's worried about the big lucrative game being rained off. If if rain costs us, if something happens in the next couple of weeks and they can't finish that season, yeah. I'm going to have words. Yeah, we need Indigo to Saram to play while he's 50. If you don't know what we're talking about, listen to the start of story time last week. But yeah, become a patron, um, support the work that we're doing at patreon.com forward slash the final word. The other interviews coming up in the feed, we've got one with an international star, um, which will lob a bit later this week. And then one with one of the greatest cricketers of all time, which will be dropping in the feed next Monday. So a little, um, a little teaser uh, for what's coming up between now and this time next week. We're getting the Ouija board out and we're talking to DG Bradman. That's what's <laughs> going to happen. We, we're going we're gonna to make each other levitate you know, with our little fingers and then lift someone up right in the middle of the room. Uh, and then he'll tell us why he picked Frank Ward in 1936-37. All right, I better go. You better go as well. This has been The Final Word, Season 14, Episode 41. Bye. So you know what I meant here. I had to go about.